Hello, and welcome to episode three of the RelativityChallenge.com podcast. My name is Stephen Bryant, and I'm the researcher behind the RelativityChallenge.com website and your host for the podcast. In today's episode, we're going to take a look at some of the implications of my discovery of a mathematical problem in Einstein's 1905 derivation. And I'd also like to update you on this year's Natural Philosophy Alliance Conference, which was held this year at the University of Connecticut, and I presented a paper there in May. But before we dive into those topics, I want to give you a few logistical updates. First, well, it's been a while since my last podcast, and I apologize for the hiatus. However, I found that preparing for the conference, writing a new paper, and just doing the things that I have to do in everyday life consume most of my free time, and something had to take a back seat. Now that the conference is behind me, I hope to get back on schedule with new episodes of the podcast. Second, I've moved the hosting location for my MP3 files associated with the podcast. So if you're listening to the show or have downloaded the show from podshow.com, I'm going to ask that you visit the new location, which is blog, B-L-O-G, dot relativitychallenge.com. You can resubscribe to the RSS feed at this site, and you can also subscribe to the RSS feed or to the podcast through the iTunes store. So if you're using iTunes to manage your podcast, you can simply subscribe to it there. Um, And for anyone who has subscribed to the RSS feeds from podshow.com, while I'm going to try and make the transition as easy as possible, I'm not sure how much editing I'll be able to do to make that a completely uh, pain-free transition. So if you have subscribed already, I'm going to ask that you visit blog.relativitychallenge.com and simply either resubscribe from that site or from iTunes. I think that uh, today I'd like to begin with an update of the NPA conference. This year's conference was held at the University of Connecticut, sponsored by the Department of Mathematics, and I think was pretty well attended. I think overall there was probably um, perhaps about 50 to 60 people there um, through the various five days. Some of the participants were from academia, uh, others were from industry, and yet others were in a state of what I'll call semi-retirement in that uh, they, they may have retired from their first careers, but have found excitement in staying uh, sharp and exploring different aspects of science. Some of the ideas were uh, very well presented and very well researched, and others still were a little bit closer to the idea generation state. Some of the material was well grounded in science and math, and some were what I would have considered very left of center. But all in all, the, all of the participants were there to share ideas and to learn and to help. And this help was uh, actually, I found very encouraging because it was done through very tactfully said constructive criticism. And in this diverse group, I have to say that there were people of all different academic levels. Some had their PhDs in math, some in PhDs in physics, engineering, computer science, etc. Others had master's degrees in various fields, some had bachelor's degrees, and, and I would suspect that there were some who didn't have any degrees. But the nice thing about this group is that everyone was there to learn and to, be, and to constructively help uh, people. So they did not approach any presentation, as far as I can tell, with a closed mind. Everyone was there to 
glean some amount of information from what every presenter said, regardless of whether or not they agreed with that presenter's perspective. And I found that refreshing because I know as someone who is out there trying to deliver a message which is a little bit left of center of what the mainstream scientific community um, agrees with, um, I know sometimes it's hard to get acceptance in forums like mainstream journals of the material. So in a forum like this, uh, not only was it a nice avenue to present ideas and get feedback, it was also very encouraging to see people who were definitely open to hearing uh, different thoughts. In my case, I was one of the new guys. So it was my first NPA conference, and I had the fortune of being uh, one of the last presenters, actually. I presented on Friday, which was the last day of the of the conference. And I say fortune because it, the by being last, it gave me a week to add some pretty nifty transition effects and animations to my presentation. So what people saw during my presentation was a much more polished version than what I had originally arrived with. And for those of you who have or have not seen the, the presentation, which is now out on the blog, my presentation was essentially an updated version of the material I shared with you on episode two of the podcast. And I'm happy to say that the podcast was very well, or excuse me, the presentation was very well received and the feedback and encouragement I received after the presentation was extremely positive. In fact, one person who I had met and I viewed as somewhat skeptical just because of some of the comments he had shared with me earlier in the week. At the end of the presentation, he approached me with um, very positive feedback and acknowledgement and even said that it sounded like I had revealed a math problem where people did not believe one existed. And coming from someone who earlier in the week had uh, approached what I was going to talk about with some degree of skepticism, uh, I found this to be very, very um, rewarding and very, very uh, flattering. And uh, this was one of the uh, semi-retired professors with a PhD. So coming from him who, who has some knowledge in this space, again, it was uh, definitely positive feedback. So for those of you who have not seen the presentation, the revised presentation, I have posted it to the blog. So uh, I think I've labeled it stores presentation or something of that nature. So feel free to go out to blog.relativitychallenge.com and look at it there. It's not gonna be included as part of the RSS feed. I just wanted to share an interesting story about my flight home as I met a few nice people. And I flew home on JetBlue, and if you've ever flown JetBlue, you know that they have great TVs, everyone gets their own TV, but they don't feed you a meal regardless of how long the flight is. So you're actually encouraged to bring your own food if you're planning to eat. So at some point, a young woman sits down and she's brought on board a sandwich. A few of us have only brought on uh, snacks, so we started to, to tease her about having enough food for everyone on the plane, and if not everyone on the plane, at least for the people in her row. And at some point she said she didn't think she could do that unless there was some sort of weird time dilation or length contraction thing going on. That's a comment you don't hear every day. And I thought, hmm, she must know something about relativity. And to make a long story short, she did. In fact, she had just finished a course in relativity and had even read Einstein's 1905 paper. Uh, through the course of the flight, I ended up showing her the presentation, and we actually started to work on some math puzzles. 
Uh, she added that she thought the presentation was very clear, made a lot of sense, and was going to ask her professor to check out the website and the, the presentation after I posted it. At some point, there was another uh, guy in the row. Uh, he joined us and asked, are you guys doing math puzzles? Uh, after we said yes, he came over, joined us, offered a few math puzzles of his own, and for the next six hours, a uh, combination of just getting to know each other as friends and doing math and physics puzzles uh, made a six-hour flight feel like one hour. So to Ben and Anna, thank you for an enjoyable flight, and uh, hopefully we'll stay in touch. So now... I'd like to move on to some implications of my findings, and I'm going to talk about this today at a very high level because we're going to drill into these implications in detail in future episodes. But the way I'd like to address this today is by answering some of the questions I've received over the past weeks and months. The first question I'd like to address is, if there's a problem in Einstein's derivation, what does it mean? And at this point in time, I can only begin to answer that question, as I'm sure I'll revise my answer as time goes on. But in a nutshell, it means that Einstein's theoretical explanation of how the world works is in jeopardy. Explanations that answer the questions like, why, you can't, why can't you go faster than the speed of light? And if you've listened to my first episode, you know that the common answer is because Einstein said so. Well, if there's a mistake in Einstein's work, such that it's not mathematically sound, then his conclusion or his answer does no, no longer applies. So it means that we might not be constrained to the speed of light as the fastest that anything can travel, especially if we have a model that explains how it might be possible. It means that we can now explain some of the faster-than-light experiments that have been informed, uh, performed. It means that we might be able to return to an ether-based model, again, if we have a model that explains how this might be possible. And this last point is pretty important, because that would mean that light can be treated in a similar mathematical way as we treat other waves, such as waves traveling through water or sound traveling through air. It also means that the fastest wave medium may yet to be named, found, or discovered. For example, we might find a gravity wave ether or a quantum wave ether with propagation speeds far greater than 300 million meters per second. Another question I've heard is, does this mean you go back to the Newtonian transformations? Here, my answer is no, we don't. It's important to realize that Newton had one type of transformation equation. Einstein had two types of transformation equations, and my model defines three types of transformation equations. So from that context, I'm able to explain the equations from a different perspective, one that doesn't require us to throw the baby out with the bathwater. In my model, the, the equations that, that Newton derived and the corrected equations based on Einstein's work both play a role. Recognize that my model explains the world in a different way than Einstein or Newton. I think the benefit over both is that my model explains wave behavior, which will be a requirement for an ether-based model. And most importantly, it gets rid of some of the paradoxes and constraints imposed by special relativity. Another question I've been asked is associated with the Lorentz transformations. And here, I need to be careful on how I answer the question. 
On a mathematical level, I agree with Lorenz's statement that the difference between the transformed values along the x-axis versus those along the y and z axes will be by a factor of the square root of 1 minus v squared over c squared. My equations adhere to this mathematical conclusion. Where I differ from both Einstein and Lorentz is that they felt that this meant that all of the equations needed to be normalized. The primary way of using my equations is in their unnormalized form. This means I offer a completely different, different explanation than either of them, and of course, that would lead to different conclusions. This is important because I've also been asked, how can your model work if you simply extend Einstein's postulates? Again, here, I need you to think about what I've said. I have, I have three types of transformation equations in my model. Einstein had two, and I don't automatically normalize the equations, which Einstein does. It is possible that a relatively small change in words, whether they're English or German, will have a large implication on a theory and the meaning and usage of the accompanying equations. So while Einstein's postulates are the foundation for my work, the accompanying theory and model are drastically different in how they explain the world. So if you take one thing away from today's episode, it's this. While there is a problem in Einstein's derivation, I correct it in such a way that we don't turn the world upside down mathematically. Yes, Einstein's theory may no longer apply, but as I've suggested, it doesn't mean you go back to Newton. Rather, I've proposed a third alternative, and that's what excites me, because it means you have a way of explaining things in the world so that they make sense. You don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And this new model seems to be consistent with the experimental evidence. And this is the last point that I, I believe is the cornerstone of any theory, and that is experimental consistency. So this actually leads us to some to topics that we'll talk about in the upcoming episodes. I think I'd like to explain the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems. And then I'd like to take a look at why I think this model is consistent with some of the experimental evidence that I've looked at. So as we wrap up today's episode, I would like to thank the listeners who've taken a moment to send me feedback and questions. They're definitely appreciated, and I especially like positive messages of encouragement that I've received from many of you. You can reach me at email at relativitychallenge.com. So this brings us to the conclusion of episode three of the relativitychallenge.com podcast. Today's music was provided by Black Lab from the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. You'll find them at music.podshow.com. This show is copyright 2007 by Stephen Bryant and relativitychallenge.com. Thank you for joining me today, and I hope you'll return again next week. Until then, be well.